If you want to open your Bibles and stand with me, we're looking at 1 John 2, 18 through 27. 1 John 2, 18 through 27. You can open from the back. That'll get you there a little bit faster because 1 John is toward the back. And we're looking at 1 John 2, verses 18 through 27. And let's listen to the reading of God's word with reverence and joy. Because this is the inspired word of our God. God says through the writing of the Apostle John, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you have revealed your truth to us, that you have revealed the truth concerning Christ to us in your word, and that you have sent the spirit of truth into our hearts to lead us into that truth. I pray that that would take place here this morning, that you would uh, fill us with your spirit, Lord, to, to know the truth and to be set free by the truth. And Lord, not only that, but to persevere in the truth, like John is encouraging these Christians to do here. Lord, we, we pray these things in Jesus' name, knowing that you hear us in him. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, um, a pastor named uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a pastor uh, in the middle of the 20th century in London, and he once said, you know, I feel like I spend half my time trying to convince my people that doctrine is essential, and the other half trying to convince them that it isn't enough. Well, this text, this sermon is going to focus on the former, doctrine is essential, Doctrine is essential. As we've been walking through 1 John, we've seen John offer a couple of uh, tests, we've been calling them. Uh, Tests that are given in order to assess one's authenticity uh, as a Christian believer. Uh, We've seen what we call a devotional test, wherein John was calling believers to assess their their authenticity by assessing uh, what they are devoted to. And he said, look at your practices. Do you uh, confess your sin or do you deny and ignore your sin? 
And he asked them to, to, uh, to uh, assess their own uh, obedience to Christ. Are you growing in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you growing in Christ's likeness or not? Are you devoted to him? And then we saw what we're calling a social test, the social test, uh, uh, wherein uh, John says that uh, in order to assess the genuineness uh, of our Christian faith, we are to look at our love for other believers, for other Christians. Uh, Christianity uh, is is not uh, merely private and personal religion. It's a social religion. We are saved into the believing community wherein we love one another, and that shows a, a sort of authenticity of our confession, of our profession as believers. Uh, we, we grow. We're, we're growing in love for one another. There's a fruit of love for other Christians. True believers are saved into the believing community wherein they love and serve and pray for and forgive other Christians as they share life together. But now John turns to call these churches to assess the purity of their doctrine. He offers what we might call the doctrinal test. Another way, John says, we can recognize true and authentic Christianity is by the fruit of one's confessing sound biblical doctrine. That is to say that Christians believe and confess true Christian beliefs. True Christians believe and confess truths that correspond to the reality that God's word reveals. True Christians believe and confess the truth concerning Christ, and, he says, they abide in doing so. They persevere in doing so. Even even when persecution comes, even when challenges come, even when, uh, when suffering comes, true Christians persevere in their confession. That's not to say that we don't struggle with doubt. That's not to say we never, ever waver. But ultimately, We persevere, John says. Authentic Christians confess and continue to confess the truth concerning Christ. And that's the big idea that we see here in 1 John 2, 18 through 27 this morning. And we're going to explore that big idea by first seeing a warning about false teachers, uh, an encouragement about confessing Christ, and an exhortation to persevere. So we see a warning, an encouragement, an exhortation here. And first, we will look at the warning in 1 John 2, 18 through 27. We see John warning these Christians about false teachers. Uh, he writes in verse 26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So he's writing this about those who are trying to deceive. He's writing about these false teachers. And remember who they are. We've already uh, talked a little bit about them. These false teachers who have infiltrated the churches and been teaching false doctrine, uh, they were what, what would later uh, come to be called Gnostics. They believed in something called, that would later come to be called Gnosticism. Uh, and the name Gnostics and the belief system uh, titled Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosko, okay, which is translated into English as the word knowledge or to know. And that's a word that we see come up again and again and again in 1 John, isn't it? John's trying to make a point here. He's talking about these Gnostics. Uh, And and the reason that this belief system, Gnosticism, would come to be called Gnosticism and its followers Gnostics is because they believed, they, they said that they had special knowledge that no one else had, like secret knowledge that no one else had. They claimed that they were the ones who had true religion because they were this elite 
spiritual class that had special knowledge from God. And it, and it came from a sort of inner light, a sort of inner revelation rather than through the word of God. Uh, they believed that they were an elite, enlightened spiritual class and that these Christians and these churches well, were just simpletons, unenlightened simpletons, idiots. And so they were telling these churches that if they came, you know, if you guys come under our teaching, if you come under our tutelage and, and discipleship, then you too could have special knowledge. You could be in the know, so to speak. You could join this enlightened, elite, spiritual class of Gnostics. You could finally have true knowledge. You could be a part of our exclusive group. And so John warns them about these false teachers and assures them, you do have true knowledge. You already have true knowledge because you have the truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gnostics have denied the truth. On the other hand, the Gnostics have denied the truth concerning Jesus Christ. So they don't have knowledge. They don't have the truth. And they, uh, you know, Gnostics denied the truth concerning Jesus Christ in a couple of different ways. As you can imagine, in a group that sort of believed in an inner light and uh, 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 personal revelation, uh, they, they believed all sorts of things concerning uh, Christ. Some, as we'll come to see in, in chapter 4, 1 John, believed that Jesus was truly God, but he wasn't truly man. He just sort of appeared to be man. Uh, but on the other hand, what we see here in uh, our text this morning is that some believed that Jesus was just a man and that he wasn't truly the Christ. There was a, a man named Severus who, who believed that uh, the divine Christ descended upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him later before his crucifixion. And that Jesus, he was just a man and God descended upon him for a time, but then later left him confessing that Jesus wasn't truly the Christ. Severus did. And so John writes to me, he says, these are liars. These false teachers are liars. You, though, know the truth because you've been born again by the presence of the Holy Spirit and you have believed the truth concerning Christ. So you don't need what these Gnostics are peddling. You already are in the know because the Spirit has filled you and you've heard the word of God preached to you through the apostles. So you know the truth. You don't need what these Gnostics are peddling. That's why he goes on to tell them in verse 27, he says, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. There's no need that anyone should teach you. Of course, you know, at first glance, surface reading of that text may make it look like John is saying they don't need teaching in the church, period. Brings great comfort to me to know that's not what John is saying, actually. Uh, that's not what he's saying. Of course, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.1 that there are those who are called to the office of teaching in the church, the apostle John himself, who's writing this, he is a teacher. He's writing this letter to teach the churches. He wrote John's gospel, and he wrote Second John and Third John, the book of Revelation, in order to teach. He's teaching them right now as he's writing this very letter. It doesn't mean that there's no need for teachers in the church. Instead, he's warning these churches. He's saying, he's telling them that they don't need the teaching of these Gnostics. They don't need a special teaching in order to receive special knowledge so that they can join an elite, super spiritual class of people because the teaching they've received about Christ by the Holy Spirit through the apostles is the truth concerning Christ. And the truth concerning Christ leads you into the truth concerning God. And what these Gnostics were teaching about Christ were lies. And notice in 
in verses 18 and 22, how he speaks about these false teachers. Look at what he calls them. He calls them antichrists. Now, I, I know there's a lot of hang-ups, probably a lot of baggage in this room regarding that word, antichrist. Typically, we think of a, of a singular, powerful individu- individual who opposes Christ in the world, and uh, maybe you think of the Pope, or maybe you think of a uh, president or a leader in the UN, or something like that, and, and you know, the, there's just all sorts of visions that people have when they hear that word, And it's not necessarily wrong to see the Antichrist as a singular individual. We see that in the New Testament. But then we also see John here talk about Antichrists as a group of people, a group of false teachers. And and, and according to John here, there's multiple Antichrists, many Antichrists even. Look at what he says. He says, children, it's the last hour. As you've heard that Antichrist is coming, there's the individual So now many antichrists, there's the many, have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. When he says last hour, he doesn't mean that Jesus is going to return within the hour or tomorrow or anything. That's the apostles' way. When you see the apostles use this language about last hour or last days, what they mean is that we live between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. That's what the last hour is. And he says that in the last hour, after the first coming of Jesus, before the the second coming of Jesus, there are many false teachers that oppose the kingdom of Christ in the world, who teach false things about Christ in the world today, from the Gnostics in the first century to Jehovah's Witnesses today, from the Gnostics in the first century to the Mormons today, and and many more. There are many antichrists teaching. There are many antichrists, those who teach false ideas about Christ. And I want you to realize this morning, that, that, that the reason that John calls them Antichrist is because he sees this, he sees these individuals as spiritual opposition. He sees this as spiritual warfare, even. And that's another term that we have a lot of baggage over. You know, maybe you picture the exorcist when you hear the word spiritual warfare and heads turning and vomiting and all this crazy stuff. But But John sees this battle for sound doctrine as spiritual warfare. And so I want want you to picture another thing when you hear that word spiritual warfare. I I want you to picture another thing, too. I I, I want you to picture someone waking up in the morning and reading their Bible. I want you to picture, when you hear the phrase spiritual warfare, I want you to picture someone sitting in a coffee shop and reading systematic theology. And I know that's not as exciting, but that is just as much spiritual warfare, according to John here. The fight for good, true, biblical, sound doctrine is a a fight in spiritual warfare. In fact, I think John would go as far to say he's saying here that the fight for sound doctrine is really the front line of defense in spiritual warfare. And think about what what Jesus taught concerning Satan in John 8 when he presents his most clear teaching about the identity of Satan. What does he call him? In John 8, 44, he says that he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Or think about when we first see Satan in the the history of redemption in in Holy Scripture. When we're introduced to him, when we witness his activity for the first time in Genesis 3, what does he do? 
Well, Dallas Willard says that, that when Satan came to Eve in the garden, he didn't come and hit her with a stick, but with an idea. You know, he, he didn't come at her with heads turning and, and vomiting and all this other. He, he came to her teaching her false doctrine, came to her teaching her false ideas about God and about herself and about the world and about what God had called her to as a human being made in her image. He came to her with false doctrine. He came to her, and what's more, you know, what's interesting is, is that he came to her with lies that were attractive, didn't he? Now, here's the thing. False teachers in John's day, they were coming with these teachings that were attractive at the time. They were doctrines that fit with and made sense in the worldview of those who held them and had heard them. And perhaps this morning, you're not all that much in danger of adhering to this ideology known as Gnosticism. Maybe. Perhaps this morning you're not in danger of believing that, but there are other antichrist teachings. There are many antichrist teachings in the world that we might be in danger of falling for. You know, last year, Ligonier Ministries released the results of their survey called the State of Theology. They do this every two years. And they survey Americans as a whole, and then they survey evangelicals specifically in different age groups they're in to determine where we're at theologically. And uh, the results this last year were kind of shocking. Now, 52% of evangelicals agreed with the statement, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. That's evangelicals. Evangelicals are those who say that they believe the evangel, which means gospel. The gospel says that we are not good people, but that we are sinners by nature and condemned by God apart from the saving work of Jesus. Yet 52% of evangelicals say that we are by nature good. 51% of evangelicals agreed that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity and Judaism and Islam. Again, instead of affirming that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ, as our very text actually teaches this morning, John says that, that no one who, does, who, conf, who denies the Son has the Father. The only way to have the Father is if you trust in the Son, if you confess the Son. The Father and the Son cannot be separated. If you don't have Christ, you don't have God. And yet, of evangelicals say that God accepts the worship of all religions. Here's the biggest shock of all. 73% agreed that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73%. Instead of confessing and believing that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, truly God and truly, uh, truly man, truly God that existed in eternity past, they believe that he's a created being, that he's not God, that he's something less than God. As John says here, again, that's an antichrist teaching. These are important, these are not unimportant matters. John's not talking about like Christians who differ over baptism. These are antichrist teachings. These, These are teachings that affect the eternal destiny of those who confess or deny such truths. 
These are antichrist doctrines. These are matters of spiritual warfare. What you believe and what you confess is of utmost importance. You must confess and believe sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is essential. It's a necessary fruit of the new birth, even. It's a necessary fruit of authentic Christianity, which is why John goes on to give an encouragement about confessing Christ to these Christians here. He writes next, and this encouragement, right, starting in verse 20, he says, you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So he's warning here, but he's also encouraging. These Antichrists have denied that Jesus is the Christ. They've denied that he is the the Son of God come in flesh to save us sinners. They've denied that Jesus is the Lord and and, and Savior of sinners. Therefore, they don't truly know God, John says, because the only way to truly know God is by knowing Christ. He's the one who reveals God to us and reconciles us to God, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So John says that these antichrists believe and teach lies. They are liars. He doesn't just call them antichrists. He calls them liars. Sometimes we need to say to people who are teaching false ideas, you are a liar. But then he turns to these Christians at these churches and he says, it's not true of you though. You, you, you do know God, you know him because you have believed and confessed the truth concerning Christ. They've confessed that Jesus is the Christ. They've believed that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of, of God the Father. They've confessed sound doctrine. And John says, this is a sign that you are genuine, authentic Christians. This is a sign that you have been, he says, anointed by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean when he says that those he's writing to have been anointed by the Holy One? First, we would do well to recognize that John is making a contrast here between antichrists and true Christians. The word Christ or, or Christos in the Greek means anointed one. Antichrists are the anti-anointed ones, and true Christians are those, he says, who are anointed by the Holy One. So what does it mean to be anointed, though? Now, I know that we often hear this word as, as a way of, like, describing someone who's particularly charismatic or gifted. You know, when someone's uh, good at preaching or singing or leading or something, we say, that person is really anointed. That's just a way of saying they're really gifted, really charismatic. That's not what this word means here. Biblically, when, when someone is anointed, they are set apart and devoted for sacred purposes. In the Old Testament, whenever someone becomes a prophet or a priest or a king, they are anointed with oil. In the New Testament, Christ fulfilled these three offices. He is our prophet, priest, and king, and that's why he's called the Christ, the anointed one. But now this anointing is not something he holds on to for himself. He also shares it with us by giving us the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy One being referred to here, by the way. It's, he, he's saying that, that the, Holy, the Holy Spirit is the Holy One that we have been anointed by and with. What John says here, similar to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 21 through 22, he says, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit. 
in our hearts as a guarantee. And it's the Holy Spirit who leads us into the truth concerning Christ. In fact, you know, Jesus actually called the Holy Spirit in his most clear teaching on the Holy Spirit in John 16. In John 16, 13, Jesus tells the disciples that when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. He says, no one uh, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You know, apart from the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, we're dead to the beauty and worth and excellence of Christ. We're blind to the truth concerning Christ. We need God to open our eyes and reveal the truth concerning Christ to us. Apart from the, the work of the Spirit in our lives, we, you know, apart from his work, we can think that Jesus was a good teacher, we can think that, 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 that he was a good man. We, we may even admire some of his teachings. We may even assent to certain truths about him, but only by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit filling us and anointing us can we savingly believe and trust and confess the truth concerning Jesus Christ. We need the Holy Spirit. And during Jesus' earthly ministry, there were all sorts of rumors about his identity, there's all sorts of differing opinions about who he, uh, who he was and, and what he came to do. And so in Matthew 16, he pulls the disciples aside and, and he says, who do people say that I am? And, you know, they kind of list off some names, say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, some just say you're just one of the prophets. And Jesus then asked them, but the million dollar, the most important question of our lives. He asks him, he says, who do you say that I am? Peter, he's not a shy man, speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said something interesting. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, meaning Simon, son of John. He, he says, blessed are you because Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Friends, saying that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God and trusting him, it takes a miracle of God for us to recognize and believe and confess this truth. It takes a miraculous work of God within the soul of a human being for us to believe and confess the truth about Jesus Christ. And that's why John is so encouraged here. That's why he's so encouraged here, and that's why he's seeking to encourage these Christians. He's saying, you have confessed the truth of Jesus Christ. In the face of this false teaching, in the face of these antichrists, you have confessed the truth concerning Jesus Christ. You have held fast to sound doctrine, and I want this to assure you. I want you to be assured by this. I want you to see that you are authentic Christians because authentic Christians believe and confess that Jesus is the Christ. You believe and confess that Jesus is the Christ. You, can, you believe and confess that he is the son of God and savior of sinners. That must therefore mean that you are authentic Christians. Be assured, be encouraged by this, he says. He, wa he wants you to be encouraged this morning. If you're a Christian who has confessed the truth concerning Jesus Christ, he wants you to be encouraged because authentic Christians confess 
and hold to sound doctrine. But not only that, not only that, not only does he warn them, not only does he encourage them, but then he also exhorts them. He gives them exhortation to persevere in the faith. He gives them an exhortation to persevere in confessing sound doctrine. Look at verses 24 and 25. It says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. If you're reading the New Testament, it's hard to miss. This is a major theme found throughout. Abiding. Enduring. Abiding, enduring, continuing on, pressing on. In reform circles, we, we call it the perseverance of the saints. Persevering. God's people are called to persevere, and they do persevere. Exhortations are, 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 to persevere are found in almost every single book of the New Testament. That's what John is doing here with this language of abiding. He's calling these churches to persevere in their confession and belief in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to, for one to say that they once believed. It's, it's, it's not enough to have walked down the aisle uh, to the altar at some church or at a camp or at a conference or something of that sort. It's necessary that we continue to confess and believe the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Notice that but these antichrists at one point in time, they were members of the church, John says. However, the fact that they didn't persevere proved that they were not actually anointed by the Holy One. It proved that they were not authentic and genuine Christians. John says in verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they weren't of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they're not of us. He's not just simply talking about those who left the church because they moved to a different city or something. He's talking about those who abandoned the church because they abandoned the faith. It didn't continue. They, they had made the good confession at one point. They were baptized members in good standing with their local church, but they didn't persevere. And in so doing, they proved that they were not authentic Christians. Authentic Christians persevere in confessing the truth concerning Christ. As John Stott once said, he said, perseverance is the hallmark, the hallmark of the saved. True Christians not only hear and assent to the message for a short time, the message continues to be present and active in their lives till the end. Perseverance in the truth is the ultimate and final test of authentic and genuine belief. All those who truly believe will persevere in believing. They will abide. However, I want you to notice that John doesn't see Christians as being inactive in this perseverance. Look at how in verse 24 he puts it in the imperative. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. He wants these Christians to persevere. He wants them to fight to hold on to the truth that they have. And you know, that's part, that's part of my goal here as a pastor of this, and that's part of the goal of the pastors here at Veritas. We, we want to help you confess and believe and persevere in sound doctrine. We have the same goal as the Apostle John here. And so I, I, I want to close with just a few practical ways, actually eight, it's not just a few, eight practical ways that you can pursue and persevere in sound doctrine as a Christian, as a member of Veritas Community Church. 
And it's cheesy, but it spells out the word doctrine. (laughs) To help you remember. It's a method of helping you remember. So first, D. Don't be an autonomous Christian. You know, in order to pursue and persevere in biblical doctrine, don't be an autonomous Christian. Christianity is not an individualistic religion. It's not a religion of of autonomous individualists. It's a relational, communal, social religion, one wherein you share your life with and depend upon, and I know it's hard, but you're accountable to, you're accountable to other Christians. Indeed, John points out that those who begin to deny the faith eventually departed from the church. However, from my experience, the church members who deny the faith actually left the church long before they did physically. They, they left the church spiritually, emotionally, relationally. They left the church long before they deny the faith. They see themselves and live as autonomous Christians. They don't share their struggles and doubts with other Christians. They don't submit to church leaders. They don't share life with a body of believers who have linked arms to follow Jesus together. And if you don't do that, the battle is pretty much already lost. We need the church. We need the believing community. The church is the chief means through which God helps us persevere in the Christian faith. The church is the chief means that God uses to make us continue to hold fast to our confession. Don't be an autonomous Christian. Second O, own your doctrinal temptations. As I mentioned earlier, the reality is that you probably are not going to struggle with believing some aspects of, of Gnosticism. You probably won't be tempted to believe like the Gnostics and Docetists did, that Jesus was God who merely appeared to be human. You probably won't struggle with believing that that an evil deity created the physical world like Gnostics believed. You probably won't struggle with believing those things. It'd be pretty weird in the West today if you came across someone who said, yeah, I believe Jesus is God, but not man. Typically, you know, we, we live in a materialistic, empiricist kind of age, and so we generally if we fall into some sort of antichrist teaching, it's typically the belief that Jesus is merely a man and not God, that he's merely a good teacher, that he's merely a political revolutionary, that he's merely a philosopher who taught good ideas. You might even be tempted to believe the the same yourself because we live in this materialistic, empiricist age that struggles with belief in the supernatural. So be aware of that. Be be aware of the claims and teachings that confirm exactly what you want to believe. If you're passionate about about social justice, which is good and you should be, beware of potentially falling into believing that Jesus merely came as a political revolutionary to be a catalyst for social justice in the earth, rather than to be the savior of sinners. If you're passionate about living a, a balanced and healthy lifestyle, that's good and you should be. Beware of of potentially falling into believing that Jesus is merely a life coach who came to help you with your self-improvement project. If you're passionate uh, and intellectually rigorous and interested in philosophical study, beware of potentially falling into believing that Jesus was merely a philosopher who taught good ideas in the vein of Plato or Aristotle. 
own your doctrinal temptations. Be aware of them because in so doing, you're able to identify where you might fall into doctrinal error. Own your doctrinal temptations. Uh, Third, C, confess the faith regularly. Almost every week, we confess the Apostles' Creed. You probably know there are important reasons that we do that. It's not just in order to express our own personal beliefs as Christians. It's also in order to instruct us in what is true doctrinally and to protect us from falling into doctrinal error. Help us remember the truth and to hide it in our hearts. It's a formative practice. Douglas Sean O'Donnell, he put it well. He said, you know, when we recite the Apostles' Creed in church, we should see it as an external defense mechanism against heresies. For example, if for years you have recited, I believe in Jesus Christ, and recite that he died and rose again on the third day, and then some antichrist comes on the history channel and denies that claim, the heresy alarm goes off. Confessing the faith instructs us and protects us in in sound doctrine. It helps us tell the difference between a truth and a lie. It helps us recognize the difference between a counterfeit and the authentic thing. So confess the faith regularly. The fourth is tell the world. T, tell the world. Now, Christian doctrine, Christian beliefs are confessional. They are confessional, meaning they're public truths, not private truths. They're truths that we're to talk about and tell others about. We're not to be ashamed of them. We are to go public with what we believe as Christians. That's what it means to confess that Jesus is the Christ. It means to go public with, to confess, to go public with, to publicly announce. One means we do this by is, is baptism. That's the way that Christians, for the first time, publicly announce that they're Christians and followers of Jesus, but then we also go on to publicly announce and publicly confess our faith when you're at work or when you're with your neighbors, when you're talking to a stranger at a coffee shop. Take every opportunity to go public with your faith. Confess it. Tell the world. Fifth, R, read the Bible and good theological books on the Christian faith. Now, I know the struggle. I know, especially in some seasons of life, time is a precious commodity. We may not have time for silence, much time for silence and solitude and reading and meditating on the scriptures and reading good books. But I just want to press in a little bit there and just say, you find time for the things that are important to you. You, find, you probably find time for Netflix. Yeah? You probably find time to watch sports ball games and athletic competitions. You probably do. You, if, if you, and if you can explain to me what the infield fly rule is, you probably have time to read good books. You have time to read the Bible. And you can and should make time to devote yourself to reading the scriptures and to read good theological books. Sixth, I invite discussion over your struggles. If you're not going to be an autonomous Christian, this is a necessary activity for you. You need to invite discussion over your struggles and doubts. You need to talk with your church family about what you're struggling to believe in the Christian faith. 
Okay, this, is, this is not an environment where we say, all right, you need to buy into what we're saying and, and never struggle with doubts or you're out of here. That's not what John is saying. That's not what we're saying this morning. We do, we struggle. We, we struggle with doubts. We struggle with believing certain things in the Christian faith. It's hard sometimes. We struggle with sin and that, that we struggle with assurance and we struggle with doubts and, and you need others to help you deal with your doubts. You need others to speak the truth to you and to encourage you and to help you persevere in confessing the truth concerning Christ. You need others. Invite discussion over your struggles. Invite discussion over your doubts. Don't hide them. Invite discussion over your struggles and doubts. The seventh in, never see, never fail to see doctrine as practical. I remember reading a a, a well-known pastor saying about the modern church today, said, the need of the day is deeds, not creeds. Of course, we believe that good works, good deeds are necessary. It's a necessary fruit of the Christian life. Good deeds are necessary. However, this is very, very short-sighted statement because your creed will inevitably lead to certain deeds in your life. Notice what we've seen so far in, in, in 1 John. John has warned these believers about the despicable behavior of these Gnostics. They don't confess sin, they deny it. They don't obey Jesus, they disobey Jesus, and they're proud of it. They don't love their neighbors, they hate their neighbors, John says. And this is a result concerning what they believe. The the fruit of your deeds will inevitably follow the root of your creed. Your your creed will lead to certain deeds. What you believe will inevitably manifest itself as certain behaviors. Never forget that. The fruit always comes from the root of what you trust in and believe in. And then lastly, E, I would say embrace Christ. Embrace the Christ. You know, there's a way of studying doctrine that could lead to big heads and cold hearts. I think of Pilgrim's Progress when Christian and faithful, they're on their way, they're walking down the road, and they run into Mr. Talkative. Mr. Talkative, he's, he's impressive at first. He's, he's doctrinally competent in in many ways. He knows all the right things to say. He can most certainly talk the talk, but as time goes on, Christian and faithful find that Mr. Talkative, he's actually all talk. He may have an intellectual comprehension of the truth and maybe even an intellectual assent to certain truths about the gospel. He can regurgitate some facts that he read in his systematic theology textbook, but he hasn't savingly trusted in Jesus. It hasn't affected his heart and his will has not been conformed to what he knows. Christian says about him this, he says, religion has no place in his heart or home or manner of living. All that he stands for is based upon his tongue to make a noise with it is of the very essence of his religion. His home is as empty of true religion as is the white of an egg void of flavor. call to doctrinal purity here is not a mere call to being able to regurgitate some facts that you read in systematic theology. As helpful as that can be, 
The call here is to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the task of pursuing and persevering in good doctrine, it's not an abstract, merely cognitive pursuit. It's a pursuit we give ourselves to in order to treasure and know Christ more. Why are we passionate about sound doctrine? Why, why, why is it essential? It's because sound doctrine is the truth concerning Christ. And we want to know and treasure Christ. It's about discovering the glory of who he is. It's about treasuring his beauty and worth. It's about finding deep rest and true satisfaction in who he is and what he's done for us. You see, authentic Christians pursue and persevere and grow in sound doctrine because authentic Christians find Jesus worthy of being known and treasured in our hearts. His excellence and beauty and worth has so captivated the heart of the Christian that they need to know him more. They need to persevere because he is the prize. They need to tell the world because they've been so affected by what they know. That's the fruit of being anointed by the Holy One. That's evidence of authentic Christianity, embrace the Christ, trust him, treasure him, and tell the world. Authentic Christians confess the truth concerning Christ. They persevere in doing so. Let's pray. Father, would you impress this upon our hearts, your word upon our hearts. Help us to hide it in our hearts. And hold fast to it to the end. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.